0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 269. There's a tidal wave coming. What
1: you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now, here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey, everybody. Welcome
0: back to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. So as you can probably tell with my voice, I still am suffering the ravages of a head cold. It's not as bad as it was if you listen to episode 268 of The Bob Murphy Show, or I don't know what episode number it was, but my recent episode on the Human Action Podcast with Pear Byland, where my voice was just completely shot. If you're really a fan, I'll give you some inside baseball. So I recorded the episode with Pear that morning, and then later in that afternoon, I recorded with Daniel Miller of the Texas Nationalist Movement, and... You can kind of see here how my voice just (laughs) deteriorated over the course of that day. And then I was supposed to do another podcast with Cole Snell, the Founders Forum podcast, the next day. And we had a team meeting with the Infinio team that morning and Cole heard me trying to talk and he just said, Bob, we're not doing the podcast today. So that got postponed, that one. It was just because my voice was completely shot. So anyway, this is what you're hearing now is actually on the upswing. This is like when unemployment has fallen back down to 7%. After a bad recession. So anyway, what we're doing in today's episode, I thought, you see, it's tricky. Like, I want to just give you guys fresh content. And I imagine, I don't know, somebody who's been versed on Rothbard's theory since age 12, and I want to give something mind-blowing to that listener. And I realized, no, no, that's setting the bar too high. It's fine to just repeat some things that to me are commonplace. But if it's my area of expertise, then even though it's old hat to me, it might be new to you. And even if it isn't new to you, maybe it helps to have somebody reinforce the basic truths. It's not like you go to church every week and say, oh, he's talking about this Jesus guy again. All right, we got it. And no, Murray Rothbard is not Moses. It's not what I'm saying. So what I want to do is just kind of a back to basics refresher on, you could call it private law, and I've called it that myself in previous work, in written and verbal, but to me, I think the more critical thing is it's, I don't know I say nonviolent. I mean, yeah, it is that too, but it really is a way that people in society can express their strongly held opinions on things, even pertaining to matters of justice and morality, without the resort to violence, particularly without the resort to institutionalized coercion. Put it that way, all right? And so to me, to say, you know, oh, we don't need a state, and you can use a capital S if you want, apparatus in order to enforce the rule of law, a lot of Rothbardian types are gonna say, right, because it should be the private sector, not the government. And and notice when you want to express an opinion that you think is not quite right, you put a funny voice on it. But what I'm saying now is like, you know, that's perfectly fine. But for me, it's not that, oh, private good, Government bad, especially since lately I've come to agree with the people that say that calling something government is not really synonymous with a monopoly institution of organized violence. That you could talk about the family being a government or there could be church government. You know, there's the elders and they can get together and say, Hey, if this guy's cheating on his wife and he won't stop, and we have a meeting with him, his good friend in the church who brought him in, you know, pulls him aside and has a talk with him. The guy's like, Nope we're in love, I can't stand my wife, meaning we, the person he's having the affair with, and, you know, I'm doing what I want, mind your own beeswax, then the church government can kick the guy out of the congregation. And I think that's fine, and I don't have a problem with using the word government with a small g in that context. Now, to be clear, they don't put him in a cage or start boiling him in oil and saying, repent now, or you've got three minutes before you die. They don't do that. And... Even if he tries to go to church next Sunday, I don't want them to have snipers up on the rooftop taking him out. It's at the very worst, some burly men of the church would come and physically remove him, so to speak. I think that's a perfectly acceptable fine use of the term government. And so from that respect, it's not even private versus government. And so that's why, if you notice, lately I've been really trying to be specific and intentional with my language And then I'll talk about a coercive state or a political institution, things like that, to try to really drive home what it is that I'm opposing. And so with them, it's not so much that, oh, it's not private, unless you're just using the word private to mean voluntary, in which case, fine. But there are some people that might, like, for example, if the community owns a park, And it's kind of like everyone in the community or at least all the wealthiest people sort of own it, but yet they have it. It's understood that anybody who wants to can go in it just as long as you don't, you know, rip the trees up or start urinating publicly or whatever, you know, it just, that's fine. Could you call it public park? I don't have a problem with that terminology, right? So I'm just saying a lot of the standard terminology that you'll see in like libertarian writing, even in the Rothbardian tradition. In the 1990s, let's say, I think it's not that it's wrong seen in its proper context, but a lot of it is more viewing people on Wall Street trading shares of corporate stock versus politicians in DC voting for pork barrel legislation. And they're looking, that's the, the only two modes of organizing human conduct. And then, yes, in that setting with that binary choice, it's private, voluntary, good, peaceful versus government, public, statist bad, coercive theft, then that's fine. But I'm saying there's other situations where those labels don't all match one-to-one to to the same binary, put it that way. Okay, well, we've gotten seven and a half minutes in and some of you are saying, when are you going to start saying something, Bob? The time is now. All right, so if you think that there needs to be something like the U.S. federal government to enforce a rule of law, then, well, here, let me give you a specific example just so you guys don't think I'm attacking a straw man. So I don't know if I'm going to have time to get into this. It depends how it goes. Usually what happens in these episodes is I over-prepare. I get all this material because I'm worried I'm going to run out of stuff to say after 20 minutes and I want to give you a jam-packed episode. And then I get through half the material and it's already the 50-minute mark. So we'll see if that happens. But what I am going to do is go through a majority report episode that, when did this thing be air? I think it, and when was this post? It says seven months ago. What am I gonna have to do math? All right, so this was sometime in late 2022, assuming that I'm reading this properly. So the majority report that's hosted by Sam Cedar, if you're familiar with him. And so the title of this is Sam and Emma dismantle, and they got dismantle in caps, taking Tim Pool's approach to YouTube clickbait. Sam and Emma dismantle libertarian anarcho-capitalist entire ideology. So I'm going to go through this because this caller, who's clearly a Rothbardian type, he does a pretty good job. And I just kind of want to go through because this was a very typical back and forth with Sam Cedar thinking he's being reasonable and yet blowing the guy up. Emma was being kind of smug, to be honest with you. So I don't know that she contributed too much to this. But Sam, you know, I think he believes he's being fair. I'll put it that way. I think he really is trying. He just can't help himself. I can't believe these people. And so I'll just go through and comment on that. But I want to like sort of give a preamble of what my views are on these things. And then if there is time, I want to hit. So Rohan Gray, who is the legal... I think he's a law professor somewhere. I I don't have his bio at hand. I've had him on the show here. I'll link in the show notes page. So right now, folks, you're listening to bobmurphyshow.com slash 269 if you want to see the links to this stuff. So I have talked to Rohan at length. So he's a big star now in the MMT, Modern Monetary Theory universe. So I had him on this show a while ago where we went through like a lot of the constitutional framework for the trillion dollar platinum coin. And we touched on some just basic MMT stuff in that, but we were mostly doing a deep dive because he's done a lot of work on, he claims that it's perfectly legal and constitutional for, I guess what, the treasury to mint a platinum coin and stamp $1 trillion on it and then go hand it over to the Fed and say, deposit this into our account. And so that's what we talked about. But anyway, Rohan, and this just came to my, well, (laughs) this was actually funny. So on Twitter, I don't remember what I said, but then Rohan came back and said, well, I asked you this back in 2013. I'm glad you're, you know, I'm I'm waiting for you to address it. And he posted a link to his blog where back in 2013, he did like a five-part blog series analyzing my debate with Warren Mosler that was, I think it was at Columbia. And so then I said, oh, geez, Rohan, this is kind of neat. Sorry, I, didn't even, I don't even think this was on my radar. I didn't know you, you did this, but yeah, I'll give it a look or something like that. And then he wrote and said, well, I emailed it to you back on March of 2013, and this is what you said. It was kind of freaky. I said it was like single white female, if you've seen that movie. So anyway, the reason I told you that little anecdote was I was getting ready to say, I didn't even know he... Did this until recently, but then I caught myself because apparently I did. And I even answered him on email or something. And I just, I don't remember this at all. So, anyway, part four of his five part response is he riffed on, I made this offhand remark because Warren Mosler, who's a huge, giant founding father in MMT, in case you know who he is, during our debate, I made an offhand remark how I didn't like taxes. Like, I didn't think taxes should exist in an ideal society. And Mosler was kind of like, whoa, well, I mean, so would there be government spending? And I said, no. Or maybe I'm getting mixed up because with MMT, everything is backwards. But in any event, he was surprised. He said, so there'd be no taxes. And I said, right, no taxes. And then he said, so are all Austrians like that? And I clarified saying, well, not all Austrians believe this, but yes, a lot of them do think that, you know, taxation is illegitimate, blah, blah, blah. And so now Rohan is writing up on this and he's like, I was confused by what Murphy's position was. Oh, and then I found though, he he wrote this thing called Law Without the State, this essay for the Mises Institute, which I think was just a reprint of my essay Private Law for my pamphlet Chaos Theory. So again, if you aren't familiar with this stuff, folks, and if my commentary in this episode is a bit too rambling for you, I have written this all very coherently up in several places and given like lectures. And so I'll link to a bunch of my standard ones. If you want to see this all spelled out with all the I's dotted and T's crossed, I'm just jotting notes to myself so I don't forget some of the good ones. Okay. So, anyway, if we get time in this episode, I will, after going through the Sam and Emma thing, I'll come back because Rohan's, as you can imagine, is more esoteric than Sam and Emma feeling a phone call. But the reason I wanted to bring this up right now is because Rohan's going through, and don't misunderstand Rohan's being fair to me. Like, I think he's wrong, but he's trying to understand what I'm saying, and then he's raising plausible objections and you know giving citations to as so-and-so wrote in 1940 in this famous case, blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, he's given a... I could not expect better treatment from a leftist law professor than what Rohan did. That's what I'm trying to say. So I'm not knocking him. What I am knocking, though, is... So in the comments now to Rohan's thing, so these are like fans of Rohan. So let's see here. Like this guy. So golfer one John, which I'm not saying golfers are bad, but if that's how you identify yourself on the comments of a blog post, it doesn't bode well. He goes, so he's now responding to Rohan's ostensible takedown of my insane private law views. Wow. Can't we all just agree that anarchy would lead to chaos? Do we need a complex legalistic analysis to say that absent a law enforcement authority Gangs of thieves and murderers who did not agree to the social compact would terrorize the land. What's funny is like he just literally described the state, but okay. Who would stop them? Other gangs of thieves and murderers? Again, this is like the modern world populated by nation states. Competing for turf in the free market? How would the weak enforce their basic rights and property rights in such an environment? It's madness to think that real people could live in peace without the rule of law enforced by a government that had the sole power to enforce it. What would be the state of black people in the U.S. today if there were no federal government to enforce human rights? If this is an accurate portrayal of Austrian views, then why do we dignify them by debating with them? Right, and then Rohan actually tries to explain, well, well the reason I'm, you know, bringing up Murphy's views is blah, 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 and, you know, Rowan's not, again, I'm not knocking Rowan here. He was cool with me. He could have easily just, you know, high five this guy's like, I know, right, these guys are nuts, but he didn't say that. Okay. But that golfer one John's response is typical in this genre. So what I want to say is if that's where you're coming from, maybe not as smug. So here's just a few thoughts on that position. So for one thing, do you support a worldwide single world government? Right? Because how could it be that, you know, somebody in in Europe, what about the plight of black people in Europe? I mean, don't we need to make sure that there's one world government? And now maybe some people do think that or they, you know, say, well, yeah, in a perfect world there would be, and we don't have it right now. And we just, you know, it's lamentable and there are people being mistreated around the world and it's only because our type of people haven't conquered them. But what's weird is, especially coming from the left, no, they're not for colonialism. And in fact, you know, I guess I don't know this for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me if that kind of mentality to say people have rights and we have to ensure that their civilization was what drove a lot of the conquistadors, well, not the conquistadors per se, but the people sending them, the people that were back home kind of paying for the whole thing and were tacitly consenting to it, it wouldn't surprise me if that's kind of where they were coming from. That Well, yeah, it's good for these savages if Rome takes them over. Now they got roads and the rule of law, right? So... It is interesting that a lot of the same people who bristle at the horrors of colonialism and we have to give localized sovereignty and independence to African nations and get the West's meddling dirty hands out of their affairs, want those same governments to impose a rule of law domestically because otherwise minorities would be disadvantaged. So like the same United States that, put it this way, it wouldn't shock me if this guy, golfer, one John, is all on board with the 1619 Project and thinks that the modern United States was founded on the backs of slaves and owes all kinds of reparations, and at the same time is horrified that if we didn't have the federal government around, what would happen to these poor black people? Now, I'm not saying it's an outright contradiction. He could come back and say, I'm sure, right, it's uh, you know, modern progressives finally have taken over the machinery of the state, and we're going to rectify, rectify, rectify these past injustices that the bad people, when they were in charge, inflicted upon powerless minorities and left to their own ways, those rich white people would do the same thing again. So, okay. But there does seem to be at least a bit of a tension there where Western governments are responsible for some of the worst horrors in history, particularly vis-a-vis powerless minorities and foreigners. And we also want current Western governments to have absolute domination over all of their peoples to protect the minorities and the rights of immigrants and such. It's kind of weird. So, in any event, though, just to again finish the point, in different contexts, people would be horrified by the notion of a one world government. And yet, at the same time, a lot of this just casual matter of fact arguments for why we need. To have one government apparatus in charge of enforcing the law over everyone in our country, those arguments, there's nothing magical that happens at the border. So in other words, if you are okay with there being a Canadian federal government, a U.S. federal government, and a Mexican federal government, or I don't know if they call them central governments, If that's okay with you and you realize that, yeah, murder is kind of illegal in Canada and it's kind of illegal in the United States and it's kind of illegal in Mexico and there's differences in how much time do you serve and what's the difference between manslaughter and second degree and blah, blah, blah. Sure, that's all different in the different places, but to say, is murder illegal in all those three areas? Yes. If you're okay with that and you don't think there needs to be one North American government to ensure that murderers don't just get to walk around picking people off, then why does there have to be one federal... Also, notice to so give this example, the federal government does not prosecute you for murder. That's a state government thing, all right? But I don't know that the people making this argument realize that. Okay, so if you're okay with it not being handled by a continental-wide government and that that doesn't violate the rule of law then why does there need to be a U.S. federal government? Why does there need to be a New York state government? Why couldn't it just be smaller zones or jurisdictions? All right, so that's one element. Now, you might say, you're more sophisticated, okay, but even there, if I understand your proposal, Murphy, it's not merely that you're wanting to have smaller governments, like what you're proposing is actually qualitatively different. It's that, at any given time, there's no single group that's in charge. It's not just that you want there to be like little kingdoms or fiefdoms that happen to be smaller and then it's just the benefits of competition and you can kind of move freely from one kingdom to the next and there's the current land area of the forty eight states instead of that what if there's forty eight hundred little kingdoms and they all have their different tax rates and speed limits on their publicly owned roads and they have all have government schools but They have different curricula and parents can move around. And And that's not what you're saying, Murphy, even though, you know, that actually probably would be better than the current system. But right, that isn't what I'm saying. Saying they'll have there be private property and the owners can set whatever rules they want and then we'll just see what happens. That it's not merely that I'm just wanting more decentralization per se or more secession. It's that it would be qualitatively different. And there could be, just like I don't have a problem with there being General Electric is a big company and it ships its products all over the world or Bausch and Lomb is a big company and they ship their contact lenses all over the world. And I'm okay with that. It's not that I need there to be tiny little shops making contact lenses for everybody within a three mile radius and that's it. That's obviously not what I think needs to happen. So likewise, with judicial rulings and things, there could be some judge that's just really awesome in cases of home invasion and maybe they arrange it and he does Zoom meetings and things and he has aides assist him in collecting the evidence and whatever, and he just rules on thousands of cases a year. For people, sometimes they're very remote from him. And that's okay. It's not that that guy has to have like a radius around him and he handles all of the property or home invasion cases in that region. That doesn't have to happen. Okay, so that that kind of system seems crazy to you. And well, gee, how could there be a rule of law with this patchwork and this overlapping zones of authority and what the heck, and nobody's in charge? Well, I've just described science to you. I've just described all other kinds of areas of human excellence where there's a meritocracy and there seems to be a quite elegant order in it. Right, what, there has to be some group of people in charge of mathematics. Otherwise, people would be saying two plus two equals five. And incidentally, right now, people are saying two plus two equals five in various universities, but I would blame that on state intervention. I think if you didn't have government funding and by government, there's no way I'm going to be able to avoid using the term government funding. Like, that's just, we know what I mean. I don't mean the church acting in the capacity as a government. That's not what I mean. When I say government funding of schools, you know what I'm talking about. I think that you wouldn't see college professors Seriously, arguing that two plus two equals five were it not for the heavy involvement of the state in higher education right now. Also, too, before I almost stopped myself, but I didn't want to get you too mixed up with all these different tangents I was making. But when I was explaining, oh, well, gee, if just because we have governments, central federal governments in Canada, the US, and Mexico, it doesn't mean people just walk around shooting people. People do walk around shooting people right now. It's because the state does such a bad job of law enforcement, right? So, it's funny how this alternate Mad Max world that we're depicting probably isn't more violent than South Side of Chicago is right now. And it's not because, oh, in the South Side of Chicago, we have Rothbardia. Okay. So you do have order in science and mathematics and things like that. And even though there's nobody, quote, in charge of it, you say, well, but what determines, I mean, maybe a wrong proof would get published in a math journal. How do we Well, no, because there's an editor, and he's or she sends it out to referees, and then if it does get published and there is a mistake, somebody's probably going to catch it at some point, and then it'll be corrected. And but how? I mean, what if the whole profession just says that even though it is wrong, they just say no, it isn't. The public can't know. I mean, we who guards the guardians, and these are all legitimate things. And if you didn't see it working in practice, and if you didn't understand that, well, no, math is objective, and the people that are drawn to it. You know, it's not because they want to trick everybody. And it's just, yeah, you could imagine a scenario where if all the existing mathematicians said this thing is a valid proof, even though it wasn't, the general public's not going to go learn topology to say, wait a second here. That's not going to, right? But it's just, I'm not going to happen. Do you know any mathematicians in real life? That wouldn't happen. All right. Or I guess it could happen, but the system we have, the voluntary system, is way safer then saying, to protect us from that kind of an outcome, that's why we need the politicians to get involved and to set up the Mathematics Advisory Council to make sure that if ever it were the case that all of the you know, private sector mathematicians had this grand conspiracy to bilk the public or defraud them, that the government-appointed expert committee of mathematicians would overrule that, no, that's how you would hijack math and get some crazy stuff being held up as the truth, is to have a government commission get involved that was placed above everybody else. That's what would actually allow that danger into the back door. Okay, so if you understand what I'm getting at here, I'm saying just apply that logic to the rule of law, all right? That the way to ensure that basic standard things that are obvious, that like walking up to somebody in broad daylight who's just sitting there on a park, on a blanket in the park eating a sandwich and just shooting them in the head, that yeah, that's probably illegal. There's going to have to be a really good story you give for why you just did that, or else you're in trouble. That's going to be illegal in any kind of standard system. And it would only be through crazy, corrupt government intervention that would make that not be illegal. So if you're worried about the rule of law and basic standards being upheld, I mean, almost by definition, the kind of thing where everybody can agree that, well, that's crazy. We wouldn't want that to happen in a decent society. Right. So that's why any kind of organic private sector voluntary system where judges thrive based on repeat business or not repeat, but a word of mouth, put it that way in reputation, they're not appointed through a political process. Then that's the way they stay in business is by not making crazy rulings that violate basic community norms. And if you say, well, yeah, but the community's fickle. Actually, we don't want there There's just to be a popularity contest. Sometimes the law, you know, the correct ruling is an unpopular one, Right. Just like sometimes a grammar expert will explain, yeah, even though people say that this way and it sounds natural, it's actually grammatically incorrect and this is the right way, right? So you have that kind of tension where there's a sense in which, I guess so now I've switched analogies away from math and science to the spoken languages or let's say natural languages. Yeah, there, there is this weird tension where there's one sense in which to say, what are the rules of grammar here? Well, in a sense, whatever the English speakers say is correct is correct. Right? It would be weird to say that every single speaker, like if somebody from Shakespeare's time was somehow in a coma or something and woke up today or whatever, <laughs> I guess you can get what I'm saying. Come with some crazy scenario where somebody who was alive in Shakespeare's to me, a time traveler from the far future goes and gets him and brings him to our time. There you go. For him to walk around and be like, you guys are all speaking wrong. You're supposed to be saying thou and thee and whatever. And you're not. And so therefore, you're all speaking ungram. And we would say, no, the English language has evolved since your time. That's not how we talk anymore. Yes, back in your time, what you're saying was grammatically correct, but now things have changed. There's nothing w- wrong with saying that. And yet at the same time, it's also true that you could look up in a grammar book and something that is a popular saying could actually be wrong, even though a lot of the public says it grammarians could say, you know, actually, this is the correct usage in this situation, even though it might sound funny, All right, So those are all true. And you see, would see analogs of that in judicial rulings, even like, like you see it in science, right? That yes, the innovator, the person that bucks the trend that comes up with some bold new theory conjecture, that's how you become a famous scientist and go down in the history books. But, on the other hand, if all you did was just defy what all of your peers said, probably eventually you would be excluded, and they wouldn't listen to you anymore and you wouldn't get published now, in fairness within science itself, especially if you're making conjectures in areas that can be experimentally tested, then you know that would be the ultimate criterion and if if you kept saying stuff that was wrong, then you'd be out, and if you kept making bold conjectures that a lot of them turned out to be correct, then you would be the hero. But put in like something like art or film or whatever there, where the bold visionary, the person that's pushing the boundaries, that you can't just be too far ahead of your time, as it were, or else you're not going to be ignored. Maybe you'll be lauded as a visionary two generations later. But there's always that little bit of tension, right? And so there'd be a similar thing, legal theory. And I'm saying it's not completely arbitrary. There are principles of natural law i would say all right okay so that's enough of a sort of a preamble let's start going through clips so
1: you know what? we got four people in this office right now these three people around me they believe in the non-aggression principle i do not and say you commit an act of aggression well like, wait a second yeah like, okay fine great hey guess what guys tomorrow i show up with a gun uh, right, now what happens, have, they but, take right. a vote and they say, well, we don't believe no, in the gun no. three to one. No, <laughs> no, we have, no, we have a society where three, we have guns too. Why do the other three people not have guns? Okay. But how, how so wait, so wait, they have guns now? Yes. And they're saying, leave us alone or else we will use our guns to defend ourselves. That's not aggression. That's defending your own property or whatever the specific situation okay, is. So you're, so you're outnumbered. So we've all got to be armed up in this situation. No, you don't. You don't have to. If people respect other people's uh, property rights, then there's no need for no, that. But that's true. You definitely and, have the, and if I have had the wings, option to spend If it. I had wings, I could fly. But people don't respect people's property rights now. And are you suggesting that that is because yes, they the government Yes. They, yes, they do. Like, do you go around stealing from other people on a daily basis? No, I don't steal on a daily basis. How many people go around stealing, raping, murdering? Very well, small percentage Well: it's of funny you say it's rape.: It's funny you say rape because say everyone has a gun, right? Everyone has a gun, but someone gets overpowered and is raped because one person, the 25 percent, decides to rape somebody because they are believe in the aggression principle. What happens then? Well, that person's a criminal, and, and again, we're assuming a criminal because who decides that they're a criminal. Yes. Like, what is the mechanism, Right? Because we don't what? have a monopoly of force on, in your world, correct? Okay, so let me
0: take a step back. It was interesting the distinction between law and legislation. So I think it was probably in Hayek that I first read about this, and then you know he alluded to earlier writers, and then I went and read them. But so you may have heard of Hayek's famous, I think it's a three-part series called "Law, Legislation, and Liberty." So that distinction between law and legislation. His point was people thought law existed long before legislation existed, right? So political authorities and judges and whatever would apply the law to cases long before they thought humans had the competence or the authority to make the law, which is what Hayek meant by legislation, all right? So just, that's interesting to point out in case you've never thought of that. So people used to think that murder was illegal long before they thought, oh, the reason it's illegal is because the king said so. And they just thought, well, no, it is. And then it was the king's job or whoever, the tribal chieftains, to say like, oh, because you just broke the law, this is what's going to happen to you now. But it wasn't illegal because the king said so, right? That would be giving too much authority. It wasn't the king's position to say that. How could, you know, murder is illegal. Theft is illegal. Okay. So again, here where Sam and Emma are coming from is, well, gee, if you don't have a bunch of politicians formally codifying something, who's to say? And again, just in any other area, that would be crazy, right? You don't need officials in Washington to tell you what the boiling point of water is. You don't need them to tell you that a sunset is beautiful. You don't need them to tell you that your children are adorable, especially when they're little and they're not crying. So why do you need them to tell you that murder is illegal, right? Now, it's true if they've hijacked the legal apparatus and they said, we are in charge of this, and everyone's kind of been brought up in that system, then you would think that just like if you lived, if you were born into the Soviet Union in 1948, and someone said, you know, we don't need the government to be giving us food rations without the government in charge of food through voluntary markets and agriculture and distribution networks and grocery stores, we would be able to feed ourselves That would sound nutty. And you'd say, no, clearly food has to come from the government. And there would be a sense in that day-to-day existence where, yeah, given that they've stamped out any competitors and they're in control of that system, if they don't feed you, you're dead. And so, right, there is a sense in which the immediate present, they need to. And so, yeah, right now, there's a sense in which, given this apparatus that we've kind of been forced into at gunpoint, the government needs to tell us what's illegal or not, but That doesn't mean if they just got out of that business altogether, we just well, I guess we'll just you know, three guys come up to me and they have a vote and say that they're allowed to shoot me. I guess they are, and what's to stop them? And that no, society would come up with mechanisms, and the community would be able to quickly sort out real obvious cases of no, that was an illegal use of violence, and so again, the basic mechanism is in disputed cases where it's not obvious, then people could take their disputes to a reputable third party, call them a mediator, call them a judge, who would render an opinion on the case. And very quickly, a body of judicial opinion and precedent would would evolve, and there would be community norms that would be established, and people would codify these norms into law books, and people could amend things and apply them in different situations based on their preferences with contracts, right? So if you had once standard property law evolved and so it was clear like, oh, this person owns this building and can set whatever rules the person wants on this building. So that's how you could have deviations or little idiosyncrasies here and there. And you could tailor make things based on what specific people wanted. And so you could have communities where you can't play music after 10 p.m. And you could have communities where people don't have pierced noses and stuff like that could happen. And that's how you would handle that. Again, it would be messy at first, and then it would get, I think, pretty orderly, pretty fast. It would be a heck of a lot better than the current system. But again, with with Sam and I, like, well, what if three people just approached me and said two plus two equals five? Who's to say? That's nutty, Right. And so likewise, if they come up and say, we're going to kill you right now, to say well, host to say whether they did it right, the experts in the community, just like in any other area, if someone comes up and says something wrong. Now, what admittedly, what's a little tricky is to say, okay, but if someone says two plus two equals five, that doesn't really hurt me. Whereas if they're getting ready to shoot me, I need something besides the community after the fact to say, oh yeah, that person was wrong for shooting you and now you're dead. But at least you can know as you died that, I will be vindicated by history. Right. So there is that difference. But again, it's right, right. Just so as the community could all immediately agree, three guys approaching you in the middle of the night and you're walking down the street and they take your money at gunpoint, that that's wrong. Likewise, the community could agree. Burly men who go and track those guys down and say, hey, a reputable judge reviewed the surveillance cameras from the street that night and say you stole that guy's wallet. So we've come to retrieve it and give it to his heirs if you killed him, and you owe the family whatever, 60 ounces of gold as restitution or, you know, making up stuff, that the community would agree that those guys were okay. You see how that works? That we're talking about the community through the use of experts that rise above the ranks and they, you know, they get this position of, quote, authority. Just like, you know, if we want to talk about, oh, there's some black hole that's, People discovered, and Lex Friedman wants to get somebody on his podcast. He's not going to just get Joe Schmo on to talk about the black hole. He's going to get a physicist, probably someone whose dissertation was in cosmology. And so, likewise, if the community needs to know, was that a mugging and was that a homicide, they will go to the experts on that. And then, if somebody has been established as a criminal, then when other people in the community respond accordingly, they will not be held as criminals, right? So there's certain things you can do to a convicted criminal that would be illegal for you to do to someone who is not a convicted criminal. So it's not like a contradiction or anything, all right? Okay, so then we come up to another clip where they get into the old canard about, oh, the private courts and they have a shootout.
1: Right, In, in this instance, it's like, these three here will shoot me with my gun if I'm aggressive. Because as soon as I show up with a gun and say like, hey guys, I'm running this place. And they go, oh no, you're not. They show up with guns the next day and we have a huge shootout. Maybe I take one or two of them out. Maybe I take all three, frankly, because I'm just better at it. And then I wait until there's more people who show up. So you have a bunch of disparate people with force. There is no one to adjudicate anything, right? Who's going to adjudicate? No, there's, a pri- there's, a, there's a private court system. Uh, I'm assuming there's a private court system, which I, I know that you disagree with, but we can get into that as well. well it's and not how that, that would I disagree work. with it, but <laughs> okay. I have my private court. You have your private court. Who adjudicates between those two private courts? Okay, but how do we handle it? Okay, so let's assume again that most people in society believe in non-aggression. The logic follows that most of these people would pay money, pool their resources together, have a private company defend their property rights the, wait, wait, let me ask you this question so everybody's going to pool their money together right they're all almost going to pay like like almost like dues right well yeah i okay. would view it okay. as like a insurance okay. insurance insur- view it as like state farm rights uh defense company okay okay yes so now all this uh they're gonna pay money into the entity and there's gonna be this corporation that's in charge of it right state farm yeah sure okay so there's going to be more than there's going to be more than one not to interrupt, there there could be like multiple multiple entities that that have like their own protection rackets almost in a way you pay money Uh, again it's it's not a racket you're not forced to use it right you're not forced to use it unless right the rival state farm let's just call them all state all state comes around and goes like hey guess what that's our property And uh, we're going to, uh, we're taking that property. And we have evidence. We have evidence. So, again,
0: here, we could use the exact same argument to say, this is why we need one world government. Otherwise, there would be just constant warfare. Now, what's interesting is someone might argue that, because there is a lot of conflict between states, and I would just argue that you got to go one way or the other, actually, I would say. You go to one world government to try to get rid of all the constant warfare between states or get rid of the states. So so I'm sure you can see what my preference is, but I'm just saying it's funny that the people that say we have to have the domestic world government to prevent shootouts, they typically are okay with there being a bunch of different governments in Europe and that the Mexican government, they don't want the U.S. to take over Mexico because otherwise, clearly the Mexico and the U.S. would be shooting each other all the time. They don't say that. So likewise, okay, why would these defense agencies or insurance companies or whatever the group is, private court systems, why would they constantly be duking it out in the streets? That would be expensive. And so I would argue it would be more expensive for them, relatively speaking, than it is for states to do it. Because, I don't want to go too far afield here, when the U.S. government spends money, put it this way, I think it's actually in the interest of the U.S. state, if you viewed it as an entity that had goals, to have a constant low level of warfare around the world, to always have things where U.S. troops are being deployed. Not like World War II stuff, but like, you know, kind of the current system, how things have been the last 30 years in the United States. That's actually optimal for the health of the U.S. state per se. Not for the U.S. people, but the U.S. state. Because you want there to be this constant threat and them deploying weapons and getting, you know, Taxing people and funding the weapons systems. And in contrast, if it were private, and especially like if there were multiple competitive agencies, I think what you would see well, the big difference is it's easy for the US state to explain why, oh, we need to tax billions of dollars and then funnel that into weapons that are way overpriced and then we're going to use, you know, shoot at these enemies. Whereas a private Entity would do better to, for one thing, get a better price on the hardware. And then each missile that it fires, that's whatever, $10 million, that's $10 million less in wealth that that organization holds. Whereas for the United States government, there's no person whose bank account goes up by that if they decide to avoid deploying the missiles. Okay. So it's a little bit different. There's sort of a use it or lose it. Incentive structure for, quote, public property that's not there for private property, all Right, So that's one major difference and why I don't think you would see, just like even though occasionally mafia groups would, quote, go to war, they weren't nearly as long and destructive as when governments go to war, all right? So I think that's one good example to show, or just, you know, right, even, you know, gangs. Yeah, they'll, quote, go to war, but it's nothing like when, states go to war against each other and just think through like the different incentives they face all right it's costlier in a sense for the leaders of a private group to take their organization into outright war against a rival okay not only the last clip here i want to play Sam actually makes a great rhetorical move so i understand what the where the caller was coming from the point he was trying to do and i'm not even saying the caller did anything wrong but I will give it Sam, you know, is quick on his feet here and he has an apparent zinger. So
1: I'll play that and then I'll comment on it. You think the government is evil and oppressive, correct? I mean I do, yeah. Yeah, okay. Is it the majority of people? What, the government isn't the the government? government Make up the majority of the people. The amount of people who work in the government, is it the majority of Americans? Is it even close? Obviously not. In fact, no, it's smaller than twenty five percent, isn't it? I agree. I mean, I think we're getting off topic No, here. no, like you are not. not. Addressing, actually, you're not addressing actually like no, I'm no, saying. Mike, we're right okay. on topic. Because okay, in your ahead. world, what's happening right now is impossible. Because less than 25% of the people, like you perceive the government as being oppressive and bending everybody to their will, and they make up less than 25% of the people.
0: Okay, so again, in case you missed it, I know I haven't played the whole thing, so you might have been missing some of the streams there and the consistency. But the caller, Mike, he kept coming back to saying, well, no, if we're starting out in a framework where most people are law-abiding, decent folk, then the fact that there's this minority that's going to flout the community norms and just say, oh, that house on the street that we had nothing to do with, that's our house. We live there now. We're going to just move in and with our AK-47s and get out. And he's saying, no, the community would know that that was wrong. And They would ultimately be outgunned, right? Because by assumption, we're saying if we had a community, you know, a society where most people were law abiding and he at times was saying, I'm talking about like if less than 25% of the people were criminals, you know, they wouldn't be able to get anywhere because they would be outgunned three to one, right? Because we wouldn't have this monopoly organization that guns would be distributed uniformly among the population. So, you know, why Sam and Emma do you keep thinking the criminals are going to run the show when... They're just this minority in, in this, you know, if we had a free society with no special privileges given to anybody, then this minority wouldn't be able to enforce their will and da, 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 right? And so that's where he was coming from to try to get out of the earlier thought experiments of, well, gee, you know, you're just living in a house in the woods and these guys just show up with guns and kick you out. What are you supposed to do? And again, the caller might kept appealing to the fact that, well, the community wouldn't stand for that because, you know, these people would clearly be outlaws. And, you know, their views would be in the minority and they would be out, even if they did have guns, so what? Other people in the community have guns too. And there's more of the law abiding folk with guns than the criminals. So that's what we're talking about. And you can see how Mike didn't even see where this was going. Again, I'm not criticizing Mike. I'm complimenting Sam. I didn't see where Sam was going with this either. And Sam just goes, no, stop, stop, Mike. Right now in the real world, the government is less than 25% of the population, right? And Sam goes, yeah. Or sorry, Mike goes, yeah. And he goes, Okay. And you, you think that the government right now, that that group of people oppress and tyrannize everybody else, right? He goes, yeah. And he goes, okay. And then Mike like, but you're kind of going off point here. What I'm trying to say, and he goes, no, 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 this is the point. That according to you, this small group of people who form the government right now are a minority in the population. And yet they're completely terrorizing and lording it over everybody else. And that's supposed to be impossible to you. And yet that's how your diagnosis of the current situation is. Right, And so, again, Mike's worldview is fine. And there is a way out. And I'm not just in the interest of brevity. I'm not going to play Mike's response. Of course, again, go to BobMurphyShow.com slash 269. I will link to this episode, of course, if you want to hear. So Mike did, you know, he gets into this, what I'm going to say right now, too. Right, So I'm not even saying that, oh, Mike said one thing. But what he should have said is I'm just going to say in my words. And Mike, I think, had the same response that I do. But I'm just going to try to say it in my words. Also with this stuff too, I said this when I reviewed Dave Smith versus Curtis Yarvin, that it's easy when you hear someone else kind of do a debate and then you have two weeks to sit there and think about it and it's, oh, well, what I would have said, is that, you know, so, with all this stuff, this guy, Mike, was on the phone. He didn't know it was coming. So anyway, with all of this stuff, like when you say, oh, gee, if we didn't have this state, the mafia would take over whatever. And there's a huge... Fundamental difference between all these scenarios in the current system, and it has to do with the concept of legitimacy. Okay. That the reason a small group of people who are the actual constituents of the state apparatus, the reason they have so much power over everybody else right now is because everybody else largely or most people agree to this system. Right. So I don't know if you've seen the meme where it shows this mass of people and they're like standing on the edge of a cliff. And then there's like a board, picture like a diving board, a board that's just hanging, you know, that half of it is on the cliff and then it juts out, whatever, like 10 feet, the other way. So it's a 20 foot board and 10 feet of it is on the cliff, you know, on the ground that's jutting out from the mountainside. And then 10 feet of the board extends past the precipice and it's like you know just floating there in midair as it were and then there's a guy standing at the edge of that thing looking back at the crowd and he's just gesturing and you know so he's the politician he's in, he's the one in charge and those other people mass people are just sitting there looking at him and so it's their way they're the ones standing on the board holding it up right and so all they would have to do is just step off the board and that guy's done but as long as they still stay there, they're fine, right? And so that's the image and it's Etienne de la Boite. <laughs> I always forget how to pronounce that guy's name. I know I'm saying it wrong. It was the one who really eloquently put this together long ago where he's saying the public through their obedience and tacit consent hold up the political rulers and in order to bring them down. doesn't take a violent, you don't have to kill them. You don't have to have this violent revolution. You just have to let go. And then the regime collapses under its own weight. Because like my, I said this a while ago when I was in grad school. I was saying, you know, a lot of people have this dream. You know, Walter Bloch writes about the libertarian Nuremberg trials, you know, where we're going to go through and sort of like Madame Defarge, I think her name was, and go through and have all this catalog of, of all the libertarian crimes these people committed during the days of the regime. It's, it's sort of like, you know, when the Nazis take over and then people keep track and once the allies liberate us, then, you know, these collaborators are going to be in trouble. We're going to have a reckoning. And I'm saying that, that wasn't my dream. That was never my dream. To me, what would be awesome is everybody's reading Rothbard and whatever. And then just, they wake up one day and they're all caps. and whoever the president is, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Trump, Obama, whatever, Biden, they just, they wake up, they go into the White House and they start walking around barking orders at people. And everyone just smiles and says, no, I'm not doing that. And they just, they can't believe it. And they're like, what? Then they start yelling at other people, like, arrest this man. And those people just, no, I'm not going to do that. Right? And just, if everybody just stopped participating in the system, that's it, right? What could, especially Joe Biden, what could he do? I've said this a lot. It's not like the three Kryptonians, you know, General Zod and what, Nam and Ursa, is that their names? coming and they take over planet Earth because nobody can stop them physically. Like, they can just go around killing people and eventually the humans have to surrender. And even there, there has to be the established government. The reason, and I'm referring to the movie Superman 2, in case you don't know, the three people that have Superman's powers, but they're evil. They escape from the Phantom Zone. They come to Earth. And It just so happens that Superman's out of the game at that time because he's dallying around with Lois Lane, gives up his powers. And so the world leaders surrender to general zod and so there's a lot of lessons there number 1 being without those global systems of governance set up already it would be harder for the three kryptonians to conquer planet earth it was basically because there were only a handful of humans that they had to convince who that had the authority to hand over all of earth to them but anyway that's not the system we live in right now right putin is not in charge of russia because he can kill 30 men with his bare hands. I mean, don't get me wrong, Putin's actually kind of tough looking, but and he probably has killed a lot of people in his day. But that machinery had to be, if Putin had been born in Iowa, he would not be the dictator of the United States right now, right? That machinery had to exist for him to hijack. Okay. So the reason a small group of people right now can quote, run the state and run the country and tyrannize it and oppress it. It's a very particular set of circumstances that would be hard to replicate if you started out from a more voluntary framework with diffused power and the way to assert your will over people was to acquire property voluntarily and then set rules on that property. All right. So, and yes, it is possible you started out with an ANCAP framework that one person could just keep making really profitable trades on Wall Street and keep buying stuff and eventually own huge parcels of land and then mimic state policies on them. And I'll link to, you know, I covered just that eventuality in a previous episode. But for one thing, it's unlikely. And then for another, even there, there'd be incentives in place that we would not be in his or her interest to mimic state policies, even if they did get, find themselves in that position. Okay. But let me just say this again in different words, just to make sure you're getting the point. All right. In the real world, I read up on, um, oh, what was the guy's name? It was John Gotti Jr. So it was a book. I think i I read a couple of mobster books and I might be mixing two of them together, but I think I read one by a guy that was in the Gotti organization. And then like, testified against him and then wrote a book or something to try to exonerate his good name because it was funny because he was being called a rat and stuff like even among New Yorkers didn't like him because he you know they were saying like well gee you were in the guys room and you were a rat and stuff so he was trying to like besides make money with this book was trying to explain like well no I was actually a good guy so you know Jesus so somebody in the Soviet Union comes over we don't call him a rat we call him a hero and so how come the fact that I turned state witness but anyway Apparently, what would happen is like in, I forget what community, I don't know if it was Brooklyn or wherever that John Gotti Jr. grew up in and then was kind of running the show in certain circles. They would do things like put on fireworks shows, right? And if, you know, I I think like, you know, some lady is a widow and her husband didn't have a lot of life insurance and the social security benefits really aren't cut, might give her some money to pay for groceries or whatever. I'm making that one. I know the firework thing for sure. And I think the other stuff too. Is true, right? So they would do stuff like that. Anyway, it wasn't merely going around breaking people's kneecaps because they didn't pay a loan back. It was in their interest to sort of inculcate this feeling of benevolence. Or same thing with like the Marxist groups that run certain areas in like Colombia or whatever, that they wouldn't merely go around terrorizing people and they wouldn't merely just run cocaine operations. They would like build schools and stuff. And why do they do? Because again, they have to build up goodwill. They need the support of the public. And so, I've said this a million times, I'll say it again. Why is it that in North Korea, they so tightly control education and access to the internet? Because that regime is so tyrannical, they absolutely need to control public opinion or they're going to fall next Thursday. All right, so this idea that it's not merely brute force that keeps the regime in power. And yes, you know, 20% or even, you know, realistically more like 10%, 5% even, they're truly the power elite, the rulers of society in political terms. They rely on this whole network and these institutions that have been built up. And that's why Rothbard would refer to like the court intellectuals. Like back in the day when there really was Louis XIV's court, you know, you'd have intellectuals that would try to convince everyone why this made sense. And then in our day, it's... The elite Ivy League college professors, political science professors, whatever, who come out and go on CNN or whatever and explain why our system's awesome. So that's all necessary. That's how they stay in power. And so on the one hand, so like Sam and Emma could say, right, exactly. And so the government isn't tyrannizing people. They're not oppressive. They're popular. And da-da-da. Or you could take it the other way and say that's why the mafia per se wouldn't just take over. Or if they did, they would have to stop being just like the mafia, right, in order for them to... So like I said, John Gotti Jr., he was like popular in the one borough of New York City or something. And even there, it's not like a majority actually liked it. It was just a lot of people thought, no, he's all right. You know, yeah, he had to take care of that one guy, but that guy was being out of line, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not like if John Gotti Jr. said he started going around trying to take 20% of everyone's paycheck that they'd be okay with that. No, then they wouldn't. Okay, so... I'm just explaining that so much of this stuff is dependent on ideology, not merely brute force. And so if you started in a more competitive framework, it would be harder for one group to just rise and just keep gobbling people up and expanding unless they were doing things that the public really liked. Okay, so now you could say, okay, but historically, like, isn't that where the state came from them? And yeah... So I'm not saying it would be impossible for a state to reemerge. But I guess what I'm trying to say is what ANCAP say. Well, no, if we started out without a state and an existing system with we'll just, you know, voluntary property titles and blah, blah, blah and dispersed law enforcement rule of law through competitive judicial decisions. And then people try to argue that, oh, within that framework, this organization, this despotic organization would just keep growing and gobbling up all the competitors and would impose a monopoly that would be awful. and we're, And I'm saying, No, that wouldn't happen. At worst, what would happen is some organization would start expanding and then would start cutting corners and start violating rights and doing things and using lies and it would reemerge and the state would reemerge kind of historically the way the actual state did. So I can't rule that out, right? Because the state did emerge. I can't argue that it's impossible for a state to exist because they do exist. But what I am saying is the way that critics of an ANCAP Framework, by which I mean interco capitalist, try to demonstrate that that would lead to tyranny. I'm saying no, the only real reason is if you moved away from that framework. So, again, if you want to argue that your framework's unstable and it wouldn't last, okay, you know, I think that's a decent objection. And the fact that we can't point to in Kapistan thriving for the last 78 years, I think is the biggest objection to it. But the more theoretical ones that say even on its own terms, it would lead to something worse than the state, at least under the state. We have the rule of law and competent judges and, da, da, da. and like no, that to me, that's crazy. We clearly don't have that. Both empirically, you can see we don't have that. And then theoretically, why would you think that you would have that? So I got, I really don't have too much to say about the Rohan thing. Let me just mention, because I know I'm not going to come back to it. So I might as well just, he says this one thing in here. All right. So I say, He's quoting me here where I say, just because an arbitration agency ruled a certain way wouldn't make everyone agree with it, just as people complain about outrageous court rulings by government judges. The press would pick up on the unfair rulings and people would lose faith in the objective or objectivity of agency X's decisions. Potential employees would think twice before working for the big firm. And so I had paused this example where people working for this firm have to sign an agreement agreeing that if we have any dispute with our employer we will submit it to arbitration This agency X. And then it becomes well known that agency X is always just you know in the tank for the employer. And there's always rules in the employer's favor when the employees bring up, hey, my contract said I was entitled to this and they're not paying me. And so I'm saying that would become known in the community. And so potential employees now would take that into consideration. Other firms would patronize different, more reputable arbitration agencies and workers would flock to them. Soon enough, a corrupt big firm and arbitration agency X would suffer huge financial penalties for their behavior. Okay, so that's what I said. Now, Rohan says, this argument relies on a number of assumptions I view as highly problematic, including A, that the public would be able to differentiate between an objective and ethical press and hired propaganda agents, B, that the average person would be able to parse complicated legal arguments to determine whether or not judges and enforcement agents were acting in a corrupt way and see that markets for judges, enforcement agencies, and the press would remain fragmented rather than vertically integrating and producing monopolistic agencies that provide little real choice for consumers. Okay, so that's all fine. All I would say is look at the current system right now, right? How do you fix it on that, right? Like Brian is saying, my suggestion that, well, gee, if you did have this rogue agency that was always ruling in favor of the employer, that would become known. People would patronize differently. You know, the press would publish that. They say, well, no, because the press could all be in on it. They could be biased and the judges could be biased and the public doesn't really know it's butt from its elbow with this stuff. And so they might just listen to the experts that were trotted out and da, da, da. Okay. So how do you fix that by saying, I know every four years, let's elect a president. And every two years, let's elect members of the House of Representatives. And every six years, a senator or two senators from your state. And then they'll all go thousands of miles away, depending on where you live, and they'll all Get together and they'll vote on stuff and they'll appoint judges and they'll regulate the press and selectively give inside information, and interviews to them, things like that. And that will be a much better system. The public won't be any better educated on legal theory, but by letting them vote every couple of years on certain people that then go and make all these decisions for them, even though they're not voting merely on employment law, they're voting on people who also are going to decide on tax rates and foreign policy and whether to fund the roads and all kinds of other stuff, education and funding. And really, actually, the, I can't remember the last time in an election that employment contracts was even an issue. But still, that will be the way to really oversee this area and make sure that everything's above board. And that we'll finally, once and for all, make sure that the judicial system treats the salaried employee who makes $40,000 a year with just as much attention and care is this multi-billion dollar company that employs the person. Because right now in the real world, that would never happen that the multi-billion dollar company might be able to do better in court than the piddly employee who says he's getting screwed over in his contract. Right, So, so you see what I'm saying? That with all this stuff, it's always a matter of compared to what? So yeah, the system I described in my essay is not foolproof, but if you're worried about corruption and bribing judges and stuff, the last thing you would want is to have a monopoly system where the judges get their business because they have a jurisdiction and people are assigned to them. In contrast, in my system, the only way a judge gets to hear a case is both parties agree to that judge. And you might say, well, why would somebody, you know, somebody who's really guilty, wouldn't he just not agree to see anybody? Well, then the community would see that and realize that, okay, this person's not agreeing to any judge, so probably is guilty. Okay, all right. That's a good enough place. Does that need to stop? Thanks for your attention, folks. Probably by next episode, my voice will be back to 100%. Again, for links on the things I've discussed, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 269, and I'll see you next time. You've just
1: experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.